Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Pope Francis is this week at the centre of a vicious row that threatens to derail his pontificate. He's in as much trouble as Benedict XVI was at the end of his reign, but the secular media aren't reporting events in the Vatican. Hence this episode of Holy Smoke, in which Catholic canon lawyer Dr Ed Condon and I will discuss the crisis in the Vatican. As briefly as possible, last week Pope Francis sacked the Vatican's doctrinal watchdog, Cardinal Gerhard Muller, prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine for Faith, and in terms of theology, the most influential Catholic after the Pope himself. Muller had quietly opposed Francis's wish to relax the rules governing Holy Communion for divorced and remarried Catholics. Muller has now revealed that he was dismissed in the most humiliating fashion. No notice, no reason given. That night, the night of his sacking, Cardinal Muller broke the news to his friend Cardinal Joachim Meissner, one of the four senior cardinals who had formally asked the Pope in a document called Dubia to clarify his ruling on divorce and communion, only to be ignored and refused a meeting with Francis, who was pretty angry with them. Meissner was devastated by the treatment of Muller, and that night he died in his sleep at the age of 83. Francis' critics say we're now seeing the real man, an authoritarian bully, and his supporters say that's unfair. Ed, it strikes me that two things are unprecedented here. The dismissal of the prefect for the Congregation of the Faith without warning or explanation, and Muller hitting back so hard and so fast. Yes, I think it's important to distinguish. Cardinal Muller wasn't sacked, strictly speaking. His term of office was not renewed. This is true, but it, that was it. That was unprecedented. That in itself is yeah. unprecedented. It's okay. traditional. So forgive of, me. No, it's, but I, it's, yeah. it's an important distinction to yeah. make. And it is unprecedented for the head of the CDF, which is the doctrinal department of the Vatican, not to have his term sort of renewed ad infinitum until they're either aged out or unable to continue for health reasons. So that is unprecedented. The way that he was sacked, which we know only a side of the story that comes from Cardinal Mueller in an interview, suggests that it was done in a very brusque way. But I think this reflects not so much on the Pope as an authoritarian bully as on a completely different mindset of governance that he brings to the office. He's not a secular priest in the sense that he didn't belong to a diocese. He's a Jesuit. He comes from a religious order that's organized on military grounds, more or less. Not for nothing do they used to be referred to as the Pope's Marines. And in that kind of atmosphere and tradition, you don't question your orders. You're not given an explanation. You just do. And this is definitely alien to the normal Roman way of doing things, which is much more collegial, much more delegated. And I think we're seeing a Pope who's very interested in being the man at the top and involved in the things that he cares about. But it looks terrible, doesn't it? At least according to... Could you just remind us what Muller has said happened to him? Well, he, was, he said that he was summoned on the day that his term of office expired and was informed that he was not going to have it renewed and there was no explanation given. And that is not doesn't sound great. He went on to say that he felt that the things the Pope has said about the way businesses should be run and employees should be treated in the secular world should also be carried into how the Vatican is run. Which is pretty pointed. It's, it's a very pointed criticism. I think it's important to remember that Cardinal Mueller has been extremely circumspect the whole time he was in office under Pope Benedict and under Pope Francis about expressing his personal opinions on things. He's a very loyal Vatican civil servant, if you want to use that phrase. I think you have to view his comments immediately following his dismissal or 
non-renewal of office through the prism of a very good friend of his did die in the night the day this happened. That's bound to make emotions run high. And emotions are running high, aren't they? Yes. In Rome at the moment. Yes, they are. And what, what are you picking up? There is definitely a sense amongst people that I talk to that they are in fear of their jobs, that there is a total uncertainty that you're going to have a job from one day to the next. And this isn't just about um, people running departments. It's about people with sort of the rank and file of the Vatican civil service. Um, and for some people, this is a question for them because if they're not high-ranking curial cardinals, they're ordinary Vatican civil servants, it might affect their pension if they lose their job immediately. I mean, these are real day-to-day -day concerns. And that is a question that they have, and it's a reasonable preoccupation they may have. Again, what we're seeing, I think, is a shift in the tone of governance that's very radical. That doesn't necessarily make it bad or wrong, but it's something that's requiring a whole cultural mindset change, and I don't know that the ground has been very well prepared for that. On that point, it, it seems to me that we're not necessarily seeing a pope pushing through a coherent, if controversial, program of reform, come what may, but that actually the background to all of, all of the recent events is really muddy. Um, That's for really, sure. Really muddy. I mean, for example, Cardinal Coco Palmeri, one of the church's most senior legal officers, is in trouble because his former secretary is accused of holding a cocaine-fueled gay orgy in an apartment belonging to the Vatican, while Cardinal Pell, head of the Vatican's finances, has had to go back to Australia to face historic sex abuse charges, of which I firmly believe he's innocent. But that's left the financial reform of the Curia in ruins, and very little sense of a coherent program of reform, or indeed, you know, that Francis's supporters know precisely what it is he wants. No, I think, there's a, I think it's a fair criticism to say that there, there can appear to be a lack of coherence in the reforms that the Pope is trying to push through. He's very keen on some kinds of reforms, for example, reforming the finances of the Vatican. That was something that everyone agreed at the time of his election was a clear mandate he had. And not much in the way of progress is visible on that. Cardinal Pell was making great strides, but he's had his authorities systematically eroded as he's been in office because he's run up against internal opposition and other problems in trying to change a civil service that's been stuck in its ways for thousands of years. And I think this goes to the earlier point we were mentioning, which is that the Pope very much wants to be in control of the things that concern him. So on financial reform, he's happy to give Cardinal Pell a very long lead and tolerate behavior on his part that other people have characterized as a bull in a china shop trying to get things done quickly and having no patience with obstructionist opposition. On the other hand, things that don't interest him terribly seem to languish. So we've had the announcement of a number of smaller Vatican governmental departments being combined into super departments. But as far as I can see, nothing's actually changed other than the sign on the door. And the word coming out of Rome is this could take up to three years for these reforms to take effect. But it's not clear what the direction of these reforms actually is, what the new competences will be, how things will really change on the ground. Well, the Pope is 80 years old. He may well be in, he probably is in the, in the second half of his pontificate. I wonder if you could sort of compare the atmosphere in Rome, the atmosphere around this administration with the latter days of Benedict. I think there is a comparable level of confusion and certainly curial insider politics which is always bad, regardless of who is the Pope. I think the, the main difference that you could draw between the two is that Pope Benedict very much didn't want to be part of curial political maneuverings, didn't have an interest in personalities, didn't want to see this sort of infighting amongst departments. Pope Francis is very much concerned with being involved in the day-to-day -day governance of the Church in the areas that interest him. 
So, for example, he created a department, a super department, by combining smaller ones for the promotion of human development. But he reserved the part on migrants and refugees, that sub-department within it, directly to himself. So he's on the things that he cares about, he's not happy to delegate, which Benedict would always delegate on these things. One difference that strikes me is that we learnt in great detail about the financial scandals and sexual scandals and gossip surrounding the last days of Benedict from the secular media. We're not reading about what's going on now, which in some ways is it's just as dramatic. We've got the sexual scandal. We've got financial scandals still going on despite Cardinal Pell's best efforts. And we've got a completely unprecedented public row between the Pope and his former doctrinal watchdog. Yet, I'm not reading about it. All I seem to read are Catholic journalists working for Catholic publications or perhaps for left-leaning secular publications still acting as cheerleaders for the Pope. Yes. I don't know that this actually is something that comes from the Pope himself. I think more likely it's a reflection of the media as a mainstream organization, Catholic media or secular media, like Pope Francis very much, and they didn't like Pope Benedict at all. And so they're happy to report on scandals under Pope Benedict, and they're less eager to report on ones under Pope Francis because they like the the figure he presents in the media and they don't want to present anything which seems to undercut that. So they're sitting on stories, or they're taking... Sometimes it seems to me that they're taking dictation from people very close to the Pope. I think the latter is more likely... I think that the way that news of these things leaks out in the Vatican is usually very targeted and very deliberate. And I think the people who tend to leak these stories have an agenda and they have people that they're willing to call. And they might call them in a st- to alert them about a story that reflects poorly on Pope Benedict and they might not call them on a story that reflects poorly on the governance of Pope Francis. Neither one of these actually reflects on the person of the Pope, I might add. It's about how the governing structure is working underneath them. So how deep are the divisions in the church? How far down towards parish level do they actually extend? There's been a tremendous and rather prolonged row about divorce for communion and remarried, which I have to say I haven't heard being discussed in my local parish, so other priests say it is causing disruption. Nonetheless, it's, it's clearly set one cardinal against another in a way that I can't remember during my lifetime, except perhaps when I was a a little baby in Vatican II, was happening. What do you see the future and perhaps the legacy of this this pontificate being? Well, it's interesting because, for example, on the issue of communion for the divorced and remarried, the Pope actually hasn't said anything definitive on this one way or the other. In fact, refuses to say anything definitive. And one one of the cardinals died before he got his earnest request to have clarification on that answered. Well, that's true. But... I take a slightly nuanced view of this infamous dubia document that was submitted by these four cardinals, asking for a yes or no clarification on specific points of moral You think it was a bit of a weapon? I think by making it public, it was very clear that this would become a public issue. And that's certainly something which any pope, particularly one that comes from a, I don't want to say authoritarian, but a more strict hierarchical formation in the church, would would view dimly. And I don't think it's unreasonable for him to do so. But on the specific points that were raised in that, there's nothing in the document that it was submitted in response to, Amoris Laetitia, which I think was actually explicitly requiring clarification. The problems that came out of it were on, came from people interpreting the document supposedly on behalf of the Pope and with no authority to do so, but with the sort of groundswell of media attention behind them claiming that this is what the Pope really wants. But there's no reason to trust them more than any of the cardinals submitting the dubia. 
neither one really seems to have a clear handle on where Pope Francis feels on any particular issue. Recently, um, the issue of the poor infant Charlie God, the Pontifical Academy for Life, which has been recently restocked with consultants and theologians and staff supposedly reflective of the mind of Pope Francis, produced a document. One of whom is pro, pro-abortion in certain Indeed. circumstances. And so this, this Pontifical Academy came out with a document on the situation of Charlie God and his parents, basically siding with the courts and the doctors. This was then leapt upon by the sort of self-appointed interpreters of Pope Francis saying, well, this is how the Pope thinks and it's perfectly right to think this way and we always knew this is how we thought. And lo and behold, later that day, the Pope himself weighed in on Twitter and said the exact polar opposite, asserting the absolute right of his parents and as far as I'm more, even offering treatment at Bambino Gesù Hospital in Rome. Once again, inviting analogies with Donald Trump, who made more or less exactly the same offer. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. <laughs> I don't know that I'd go that far okay, in comparison. Fair enough, fair enough. But anyway, it, it goes to the point of many of the supposed doctrinal controversies around Pope Francis don't come from things the Pope himself has said or done or written, but come from the interpretation placed on them by people who claim to speak for him and are often shown not to speak for him. On the communion, on the issue of communion for the divorced and remarried, it was insisted upon by a fairly sizable section of the Catholic media that this is absolutely what the Pope wants. This is what he means. He's calling for full integration of the divorced and remarried in the parish life of the church. This means communion. Lo and behold, Pope Francis gives one of his press conferences on an airplane and says, no, integration into the church doesn't mean taking communion. He used those exact words. So again, it's a question of interpretation and really no one has the authority to interpret the Pope except himself. Well, one thing I am picking up is the distaste verging on hatred for Pope Francis from traditionalists and some some traditionalists and conservative Catholics, which is actually far more intense than any criticism that was directed by liberals at Pope Benedict, who was in many ways a less divisive figure. But, you know, one also almost gets the impression that for some traditionalists, actually Benedict is still the Pope. Yes, that's a very strange and, as you said, toxic strand of thought. I, it's certainly not a line of argument that I would endorse or that you no. would endorse, but nonetheless you do pick no, it, it up. No, it is there. I think this is actually, this raises a wider issue of why is there so much supposed traditional or conservative, if you want to use those words, animosity towards Pope Francis. And I think it's the mirror reflection of, in the Western Church, there's the assumption that you can view leadership or cardinals or bishops in the Church through the prism of secular politics. You have conservatives who are socially conservative, free market, in favor of liberal economic values, and this sort of thing. And on the other side, you have progressives, liberals, call them what you will, who are anti-tradition, anti-use of Latin, very much in favor of progressive sexual mores, this sort of thing. But That's the paradigm of the American church, really, yes, isn't it? Yes, well, it, it's the paradigm in which the American church is spoken of. Yeah. I don't know that it, it exists at a parish level that way yeah. everywhere. Um, but in fact, this is not how the Pope behaves or thinks. The, the supposed appointment of all of these liberal cardinals by Pope Francis, actually, if you dig into them, uh, very rarely they're not what anyone in the West would call liberal on issues of, say, sexuality or family values, but they're liberal on economic issues. Similarly, people who, whom he's appointed to positions of power who might be very progressive in terms of liturgy are also very traditional in terms of personal spiritual life that these things don't always play out the way people want them to in the media and as a result there's considerable confusion as to which direction the pope is pointing because they're looking at all the wrong indicators all of which makes it 
more difficult than you might imagine to predict what the next Pope will be like, even if Pope Francis stays for a long time and has complete control over who he appoints. Absolutely. I don't think there's any mileage to be had in trying to predict what kind of Pope the next conclave, whenever it is, would produce. It was a conclave entirely appointed by John Paul II and Benedict that elected Francis. And I don't think anyone saw that coming. So I think it would be equally improbable that you could predict what would come out of a Francis conclave. But meanwhile, Pope Francis is in trouble. In trouble with whom? This that's is the very, thing. Is that's, in, that, that's a very good question. He's, in, he's certainly in trouble with lots of traditional and orthodox Catholics. That's true. But again, I think... He's certainly in trouble with a lot of the people who work for him. But to what extent it percolates down to parish level is a very good question. As I, I say, I pick up none of this in my parish Neither church. do I. I. In fact, I pick none of this up in, in many of the dioceses that I work for in daily life. I think there's a lot of distance between goings-on in the Vatican at a governatorial level versus what happens in the parish at a pastoral level. I don't think your average rank-and-file Catholic has much interest in which bits of pastoral provision or doctrinal review are taking place in which Vatican department. It simply doesn't impact on them. I think if you were to view Pope Francis through the prism of a civil government, it would be fair to say he's in crisis inasmuch as he has many senior figures whom he seems to be at odds with outside of the government structure. But of course, he's not a civil government. He's the Pope. Ed Condon, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.